and welcome to the first episode of the David Watson podcast of 2022. And in this episode, I spoke to a returning guest, Julia, and the roles were switched and we discussed my own mental health difficulties over the years, how I contemplated suicide, what led me down that path, and ultimately how I'm here today doing podcasts. Hello, welcome back. How are you? Hello, David. It's lovely to see you. Um, thank you very much for agreeing to let me interview you today um, about your experiences on mental health. Um, how, how are you today? I'm, I'm good. I'm very good. I pushed through a workout this morning. It's my third workout in a row. And um, like oh, a lot this lo- morning. <clears throat> yeah. And, and like a lot of people, you kind of you start your training and I train in my garden and I typically start about six o'clock in the morning and you start. And you're just like, oh, do you know what? You've turned up. That'll be enough. That'll be enough. And I have to have this like inner chat with myself. Like, just just do one more exercise, just one more. And then you kind of halfway through, you get into it and you can just, and you can finish the whole workout. So this is not in a shed out in the garden. This is actually outdoor in the elements. Yeah. Okay. Because it's been cold and misty and wet and pretty yeah. miserable. So that's, yeah. that's quite impressive. Yeah. So, I mean, I do kind of have... It's, it's it's basically posts with a corrugated roof on, which isn't big enough to stop any elements. So with a concrete floor. So, it's, <laughs> uh, And I, I do actually every morning when I do them, because obviously I can't do them when I'm going to work. I do post them on my Instagram story and tell, and tell you what the temperature is. And the cold, it was, I think, minus three yesterday. Oh, yeah. I hope you're wearing gloves. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Um, yeah, I wear I do wear gloves and I wear a couple of layers and it's that balance between having enough layers on that you can warm up um but not get too hot either because you don't want to have to start stripping down. So but it does encourage you to train a bit harder and not rest too much. Okay. No, I don't really ever get too hot. That's I don't know if I just I warm up quite nicely, but I'm quite happy to keep a couple layers on and 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 manage. With I, I don't know. It's my, my husband's the same. He 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 just can't can't you know. I don't like the cold at all. No. No. I think men just generate more heat, don't they? There's just maybe I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. I'm I just aware of that, but um, no, there, no, there could be there there could be something like biological like that. But I've never liked the cold. I've never enjoyed it, and I feel the cold really easily. Um, okay. But I just I have to do the workouts. It's like a mental battle, and if I if I, it kind of it sets me up for the rest of the day. Fantastic. And so, is that something that has become part of um, your your mental well being? Yeah, yeah, no, it's one hundred percent essential to it. Okay, so tell me where what um, your life has looked at looked like before before you've got to where you are today. A very chaotic <laughs> and self destructive. Um, it's interesting, you know, when I I look at like jobs that I left and arguments I had with people, it was really always an insecurity because I knew I could do better. And I was angry that I wasn't being recognized for being good at what I did. Um, but actually I was being recognized and people did respect that I was good at what I did, but I was also really hard to work with. And you learn through life, like especially as I started going into management, that you're much more interested in supporting people that are easy to get along with, because that's how good teams are built. And that people who might be really talented, if they're just too much hard work, eventually that becomes too much of an issue in itself. And it doesn't matter how good you are or how well you do the job. If every time I think I'm going to have a conversation with you, it's just going to be an issue. I can't wait for the day you leave Mm -hmm. and I'm never going to try and help you and support you. And sometimes that I was terrible at understanding that. So I would, you know, I'd get very, you know, when I say I was like self-destructive, I mean, I'd turn up after lunch break on a Friday drunk. Do you know what I mean? But I'd be allowed to get away with that partly because I was in an engineering environment and all the engineers were drunk as well. Um, but but I think of when I was in the car trade and I worked for a company like BMW and I was really good at customer services 
in dealerships and I always got the highest scores in the group. But I would also just refuse to talk to the manager because I thought he was a knob. Okay. You know, and then you wonder why people don't promote you and why you don't get your kind of just desserts. Well, actually, you are because being talented isn't enough. You have to actually learn how to get on with people. And that kind of chip that I carried on my shoulder in my 20s and in my 30s, I don't care if you don't like me. Nobody wants that in a business. Yeah. And you say you recognise that with hindsight, but at the it, time it must be very frustrating. Incredibly frustrating because you don't understand why. And learning to understand is a skill set. And, and no one ever sort of was <clears throat> blunt and uh, I, I presume they then um, pussyfooted around. And look, well, some people would just like, because some people, um, especially when I worked in male dominated environments, I had one boss who loved it because I kept everyone else in line. I didn't care who I upset. I didn't care who got offended, but I did the job. I was always very good at delivering the job. And he, you know, and some of the engineers, they liked it. Some of them didn't. Um, but it's, it's when you have a falling out or when something goes wrong, you, I didn't realize how many people would have fought my corner. I remember being offered a, a job in a different department and I didn't get the job because a higher up boss who I'd upset at some point decided to give it to a guy that he liked. And I was really, really annoyed at this. So I took a job <clears throat> on a different project completely. And my boss sat me down and said, look, we're happy to give you a pound 50 an hour more to stay, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, no, no, I'm just going to go and work somewhere else. And this, and what I didn't realise is, had I taken that job, there were lots of people that felt I'd been mistreated. And I could have also gone up to a lot of these people and say, look, I haven't, I didn't get that job. I didn't get that department. What is it that I could do better? You know, is there any way that moving forward, one of you guys could help me? Because these big projects are incredibly political with everybody trying to stamp their authority on their part of the project. So there were lots of managers in different departments that were like, no, David was better suited for that job. And David was offered that job and you took it away from him. You know, and you, I had lots of support, but I didn't have enough kind of, it's, it's a weird one because like, if I'd have actually had any pride, like I would have gone and approached somebody. I'd have accepted the off the pay rise, sat where I was, licked my wounds a little bit, but I was too worried about people stitching me up and everything was like, you just, you know, you've just stitched me up. You've just done this. You've just done that. And it's not fair. Life's not fair. But actually, I was on really good money. Um, I'd been offered a pound fifty an hour pay rise, and had I stayed, there would have been and handled it in a kind of a much more mature way, and spoke to all of the other managers, which I had daily contact with. I was in a very blessed position for somebody that was just a tech clerk, really but I was involved in lots of different departments. I could have said to them, how do I move on in the company? I'd solve lots of problems for lots of people. So I, ha I did as many as, although there were people that I'd upset, I had a lot of allies, you know, and, but no, I didn't, I just left. And then of course, because you carry that chip around, it becomes more and more destructive. I, I remember ye years and years ago, I, I was working for B&W. And I'd been offered a job somewhere else. And I used to be very good at troubleshooting problems. And B&W, a, a guy for, I think it was London area, was area seven or area eight. But you, you're talking like 2000, yeah, 2000, maybe 2001. And I was approached by the, by B&W to go and work at another dealership, which had lots of problems. So I went there. They didn't know that I was going there for that. And they ultimately sacked me after about six weeks. And, but I'd got enough evidence to show that they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And the guy um, who was like the area manager for B&W, not the dealerships for B&W, he was like the technical guy. He said, look, is, is there, 
you know, you were doing me a favor, blah, blah, blah. He was really apologetic. And he said, look, where would you want to work in, in, in London? I'll, I'll phone dealerships up. What do you want to do? And I'd been telephoned by other managers saying, I hear you're under, you've been fired. Do you want a job? And I just, my reply to him, I'd rather go and work for Mercedes. You know, and, and it's, it's like you look at this and there's a guy who's really high up in actual BMW corporate. Yeah. Who's offering you a hand because you've done him a favor. He recognizes how good you are. He recognizes what your talent is. And he's saying, how can I help you? Yeah. And, I, and I would have died to have a job at BMW. And I could have just said to him, is there any chance I can have a job at BMW? But no, I wanted to be, fuck you. Yeah. And, and it's just like, and he's just like, okay, well, there's nothing I can do. He already yeah. felt bad about what happened. And I'm being a knob about it. And that was something that followed me throughout my career for, for years. Because it was always like, you know, screw you, screw you. Like, there was this whole perception that the world was against me. What and, do you think? Where do you think that came from? Uh, I, I would say now, now, that was a lack of leadership when I was a child. You know, okay. my, my, dad, my dad and I don't have a great relationship. He didn't really give a shit about me then. He probably he doesn't give a shit about me now. I had my closest person that cared about me in terms of a father figure was my uncle, who was also a biker and had been in and out of prison. You know, it is, and it's young men need to be taught like things like delayed gratification. You know, they need to be taught that if you want something, you have to work over a long period of time for it. The, the bigger yeah. the project, the more important it is for you, the longer you have to work for it. So, and I think one of the things that lots of people struggle in life with, and I think it's becoming much more evident, is lots of us have got ourselves wrapped up in what, what's my purpose? What's my meaning in life? Why am I here? What's my passion? And although, because there's somebody that coaches, I think that's really important. What people don't always teach you is, if you want to have any sort of life, there's basic structures to live in, which requires understanding financial management, why it's important to stick to, at a job, how you actually get around working with people, the politics of office life, you know, how to pay your rent on time, you know what I mean? why partying every weekend isn't going to help you out in any way, shape or form. And okay, you can do it in your 20s, <clears throat> like late teens, early 20s, but you shouldn't be doing it for an entire decade and then into your 30s. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and there was this kind of, and it is a lot is about how we think and how we perceive ourselves. So I kind of, in a sense, grew up in a certain sense, always telling myself that I was the black sheep of the family. Actually, I have no recollection of anyone else telling me I was the black sheep in the family. But going back to influences, <clears throat> so excuse me, uh, positive influences. I was going to, I was thinking about joining the army when I left school because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I figured, works for lots of people. My granddad was in the army. My dad was in the army. Um, but when I talked to my dad about it, my dad was like, no, the army's no good for you. You'll hate the army and the army will hate you. You won't like it. You shouldn't do it. And I was like, oh, okay, well don't know what to do then so I just kind of went to college for a year and then bummed around just trying to find jobs and, you know and I always worked but it was only many many years later I realized my it was my dad that hated the army and a, a good kind of mentor or a good father would have just said you've got to go and try I don't yeah, I don't know whether the army is for you or it's not for you but it will certainly reward you with whatever you put into it, you know? And, but if you don't, when you have somebody that tells you, no, because of who you are, you will hate the army and the army will hate you. You start to think it is you. But like I said, it, it took me 20 years after that really to realize, hang on, it's my dad that hated the army. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But he, that was, that was the kind of thing. So, 
when you're when you grow up in an environment where you're every time you go to do something it's always somebody projecting what they hate about it onto you rather than you've got to find out for yourself your your vision of what the world is that perception becomes very skewed and what it actually robbed me of because i remember even when i was 18 like once you're an adult you can't blame your parents for anything it's all on you and that's that is 100% true but if they haven't taught you how to solve problems how to look at the world with different perspectives how to deal with people you don't get on with you know giving you some basic fundamentals for the tools of life like why failing matters why it's yeah. why it's important to fail and what you can learn from that you know so there were things that i never did because i was worried about what other people would think about me even though i was outwardly a very confident person i was good at sports i could handle myself i was you know i never had any problems at school or anything like that but there were things like amateur dramatics and stuff i would love to have explored that i never did you know things that i was i was good at at school like writing it it was 20 odd years before i ever got around to writing a book it was 20 years before i started writing blogs mm. and it's like so like an example when i was at amec uh, engineering all those years ago and we are now talking we're still talking like 2003 2004 <clears throat> i used to write this like f football fanzine uh magazine from could we supply five aside and i used to write this little column and it it was just made up based on everyone's performances on the night yeah now there was only about 20 people 30 people that played football but it was about 200 people that read it who were on an email list <laughs> <laughs> and there were even people that had discovered it because somebody had mentioned it to them who weren't from amec yeah, and they still say like, "Look, just to let you know, you've somehow sent this to me. I, I quite enjoy it, but um, I'm not part of AMEC, But feel free to send it to me. Okay. <laughs> you know, but it was it was still another 15 years before I realised I could write and I had something to say and that people would listen. You know, it takes time, doesn't it? it so does. how do you think that? Um, what what was the beginning of a point where you felt that actually your mental health was beginning to to go under and you were. I, um, in truth, I was just, I never realized that because it's, 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 um, it's a really slow process of erosion. You know, there was a breakup that in hindsight, again, I'd realized I hadn't really recovered from because I had some really good times when I was living in London and there was moments I really, really enjoyed. Mm. But the problem with them is below is still all of these issues from a breakup you know, the vulnerability and the lack of self-esteem that had come from that. But when you're having a great time, you don't, you don't feel that, you know, and there's that, again, you, re you realize you're sitting very much in your comfort zone and not pushing yourself or testing yourself for anything. And even though deep down, there's these desires that you have and all, and often you're envy, you envy people, but you don't do anything about it, you know, because again, I, I was afraid of getting something wrong. I was afraid of failing. Mm. Um, and then what happens is like when I lost those jobs and I walked out and then of course life starts to spiral downwards, the problems that you had before resurface, but now they're compounded with interest because one, they wasn't, they weren't dealt with at the same time when it needed to be dealt with. I never truly, I never really acknowledged it. Secondly, I now have new problems, but I'm more bitter and my perception is, is warped. And I was very much into spirituality at the time. And the fashion at that time was that everything should be Zen and it's all perfect and it's all, everything can be excellent. And if you can't achieve that, it's because you're not, you're you're not doing it correctly there was there's this idea that everything is supposed to just be perfect and okay. of course it's only as you get older in life you realize no <laughs> that's just not possible even the most you know like yeah a buddhist monk in the middle of nowhere who has no interactions with life is completely self-sustainable 
they can have a life of Zen. But if you live in the modern world, the best you can do is learn to cope with life. And if you can have disciplines and practices that support that, that's great. But I, I become obsessive about it. So every time I, I didn't wake up feeling grateful and appreciative, I, I was just like, well, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And you try harder and harder and harder to try and be relaxed and at peace with yourself. Like somehow that it, was yeah. an eff- that it should be an effort that's required. Instead of just acknowledging that life and those emotions are, are like the cliche of waves. Sometimes it comes crashing down on you. Sometimes it's calm. When it's calm, appreciate the calmness. When it's all crashing down on you, you've got to mm-hmm. try and try and just ride the wave. You know, but I I didn't do any of that. I I was obsessed with seeking perfection because it was like there was something wrong with me, and it needed to be fixed, and it needed to be fixed. But like I said. I, I I was coming from a point of never looking within. I was always looking outwards. Like if I just had this job, if I just had this money, if I just had these friends, if I just had this relationship, you know. And instead of just like, yeah, but you're not happy. And the reason I wasn't happy because I wasn't doing anything I actually wanted to do. I think that's still a huge common problem nowadays, yeah. isn't it? It's just, you know, we, we life bombards us with all these messages about what life should look like. And then we, we feel the constant dissatisfaction of, of um, what we actually have and that lack of gratitude for, for where we are. Yeah. And, and then that was the beginning of, or in hindsight, the beginnings of a sort of downward spiral. Yeah, because it, it just continues downwards because you start, you know, you, you lose a really good job. And I remember uh, temporarily, I was I was unemployed and I was at the job centre and I ended up having to get a job at Marks and Spencer's um, because they did a recruitment drive. And the woman said to me, she said, look, because I appreciate you don't want to work for us, but... There's no way you, I'm not going to employ you. And and she said, and she goes, and I know you don't want the job. You know, but I turned up, did a really good job. They even offered me, after all of the Christmas stuff, they even offered me a job. But I just didn't want it. And part of the problem was it was about a quarter of what I used to earn. Sure. But I burnt all of those bridges with my attitude. You know, and, and you have to live with that. And you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ, now I've got to get a job in a supermarket. Do you know what I mean? There's that arrogance of, oh, my God, I've got to get a job in a supermarket. Well, I ended up going back to a supermarket much later in life and loved it because I'd, yeah. lost, I'd lost that chip on my shoulder. And I was just, it's a wage and I need money. And I had, yeah. a, I had a few jobs and one of them was working at a supermarket in the evenings because I'd lost that kind of, my life can only be working if I'm doing this and it must be this way instead of just getting a job. Yeah. You know, I need a job, get a job at a supermarket. It's a job. It'll always pay you it's good discounts, you know, and you, you can build from that, you know, and you now realize in hindsight, two years down the line, you could have easily been a deputy manager or manager of a shop. Mm-hmm. You could have gone sideways into other super bigger chains, and there's loads of career progressions. You know, Absolutely. Loads of opportunities. You know, but again, I, I, you know, I just had this chip on my shoulder that I deserved more and life was against me. And yet opportunities were handed to me, but I couldn't see what they were. Was there maybe also a feeling that other people would judge you? That, you know, oh, yeah, definitely. They'd look at me as working in a supermarket and think, oh, well, you know. Yeah. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong, as you say, we're working in a supermarket. But a lot of it maybe is that self-implied but, stigma that we have of what, you know, and that's what, what, what that saying. might look like. Yeah, because there was that I was constantly looking outwardly and not looking inward. And if I'd looked mm. inwards and said, well, what's the problem with this? It pay, it's going to pay your bills. There's going to be because of the hours you can actually get a second job somewhere else if you wanted to yeah. um and all of that you just like if i'd looked inwardly i'd have been like because i'm worried what other people will think you know because look at david he was doing really well and now he's working in a supermarket you know and yet now i'm just like what sort of an arsehole judges people for what they do for a living without yeah. realizing i was that arsehole do you think that's just something over over life that you know we start off with those um i mean 
don't know if I'm being unfair on, on youngsters as a whole, but I think that's there's a there's a, a theme that I've come across quite a few times whereby, you know, there is that expectation and you know the, and it's part of being young, isn't it? You have hopes and dreams of all these big things that you could potentially achieve and you know, we were taught to to dream big and to go for them and, and somehow then if working at your your local shop doesn't feel like you've maybe done everything yeah. that you were told you could do. No, I agree. I think that's one of the largest problems that's affecting young people today and it's just going to get worse the only thing i'd say where it was different for me is i was also meditating all the time trying to be at peace with the world not realizing that you realize that that's being hypocritical because on one hand you're like we're all connected all things are equal and everything is the universe and spirit and energy but you think you're too good to work in a supermarket <laughs> yeah and, yeah and so. you just like you just live in this constant contradiction and, yeah. and but and what the thing is you can't lie to your subconscious and you start trying to deny that that's what's going on you know? sure. because in truth nobody really does judge you for anything that there, there is the odd person that will snipe or snigger or whatever but you realize once you calm down from the insult they're in a pretty bad place if they're actually paying any attention to what you're doing you know but that takes a, a level of maturity and like i said what then followed was you know you go through a spiral of bad jobs and then you end up working for a, a guy who you know is an idiot who starts ripping you off for money so you just start ripping him off for money back he phones the police you get arrested you nearly go to prison and then i ended up bankrupt so all of the things i was worried about being judged by people well i i, I just it was like a perpetual motion while like it, it, it was really kind of calmer in its truest sense okay. in like, <clears throat> I was constantly judging people for what they did whilst believing I deserved more, but my actions constantly put me in a downward trend of just mixing with people that were never going to be good, never going to be healthy where I ended up in trouble with the police. I ended up being arrested. I got convicted for theft and then I ended up bankrupt. So I became everything I hated, everything I didn't want to be. And you realize eventually it's just like, oh yeah, this is me, isn't it? This is me doing this. But it, it took a long time to stop blaming the rest of the world. It must have been very tough when you did. I mean, I presume that's then the rock bottom um, whereby um, you then started to... No. <laughs> oh, okay, right. No, because what happens is, so if we get to the bit where I was thinking about suicide, so weirdly, that was in between the theft and the bankruptcy. It was just like, that came, I'd lost some jobs, thought about killing myself, and was, as I said to you in a previous conversation, was sat on a bench at Earl's Court tube station thinking, which train should I jump in front of? And then had this really, I, I sometimes describe it as an epiphany, but normally epiphanies are like, oh, wow where mine wasn't like that. It was just like, it was a really dull sort of, you know, this isn't who you are. You're not going to do it. You know, not, not, no, it was just, what was it? There was something, it was a voice inside my head that just went, this isn't who you are. And I was just like, oh yeah, you're right. All right, well, I better go home then. And that, that's literally as dull as it was. I may as well have just offered somebody a cup of tea. Do you know what I mean? Do you take milk with that? It, it wasn't like yeah. a big grand moment of, da-da. And Which is odd, because actually, in hindsight, it is a momentous moment, isn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah. it might have been a very, very simple thought, but actually a really important one, because you're here. Yeah, exactly. It, is... Yeah, exactly that. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had that thought. But it, mm. it really was quite dull when it happened. And I literally then just got on the tube and went back to Wimbledon, where I was living at the time. And... Um, which is the district line. <laughs> I don't know why I needed to add that for people, but it's the district <laughs> line. And... But the problem then is, so I've read lots on suicide and people who survive suicide. So they mm. they'd attempted it, but by miracle of chance, they'd lived. And some say, like, they literally, in between, they went to do something. There was a moment where they're like, shit, I don't want to do this. Right? But they did something I'd never done, which is got that far. I kind of backed out just before that moment. So I never had that kind of, oh, shit, what are you doing? Mm. 
And I think there's a lot of people that get to a point like I did where you get really, really low and it becomes something you think about a lot, but you then don't, for whatever reason, you don't follow through. Now that sounds really great, but you then like you go home and you're left with this big, well, what next? And the person that I'm looking at in the mirror, I've spent a long time, if not most of my life, learning to hate that person and learning to find nothing good about that person and not liking anything about that person. And now I'm like, well, it, it's just you and me. And God, I fucking hate you. In fact, you're the, the most disgusting person I know. But there's the only thing I actually liked about you is that you were going to kill yourself. And you're then left with, well, what do I do now? Because you've suddenly, because it's only you left. And you, the only person that, you know, and every time you look in the mirror, you're left with, but I don't like you. I don't, I don't want to be you. And it took many years to kind of figure that out. And what followed was just a spiral of destruction because it's, there's a part of you that's really hurting and in a lot of pain. And you're just like, it's, it's almost like, I wonder how I can make my life much, much worse. I'm going to punish you for hating, for hating me. And it's your fault. And, you know, and, I, and then I, you know, and it just all spiraled out of control until eventually, like you said, as you're going back to what you said earlier, you get to a point where there's literally nothing left you can do. You know, so like, you, you may as well start trying to rebuild your life. And that's when you're like, I'll go and see if there's a job at my local supermarket because I need, I need work, you know. Um, I, I was, you know, and I got into working with people with head injuries. And I, at one point, the only time I wasn't working was Saturday night and Sunday. And I worked six and a half days a week. Uh, sorry, five and a half days a week. I just always, and when I say worked, I mean, I worked during the day and then went to a supermarket at six o'clock at night and finished at midnight. And I just worked and I'd start work the next day at 8.30 in the morning till 5.30, then go to a supermarket for six, work till midnight. And just did that five and a half days. Was that a sort of means of, of numbing out the pain or was it the people that you surrounded yourself with? No, or just, just I, I, I literally had no idea what to do. Okay. But I knew I didn't want to be sat at home watching TV, being bored. And, and looking for something to do because you're just going to start smoking weed again, doing coke again, drinking again. You're going to do something, yeah. you know. And the the thing about when you do low-paid work, like minimum wage work, <clears throat> is you don't have any finances to do anything with your life. Mm -hmm. And the only way out of that is to either get a second job or do lots of overtime. And then... But if you don't have any goals or targets to aim for, you've got no reason to do anything. So for me, the sole purpose, like literally the sole purpose of just working that much time was just because, well, what else am I going to do? I, I just didn't have anything else to do. So, right, you need to find a purpose. And that purpose at the time was just just work. Just have an income, pay the rent. Yeah. I can imagine that actually sort of created a bit of an insulation as well, because as long as you were working, you weren't actually sat there thinking about you, your problems. Yeah, that, that's a phrase about, um, you know, if you've, you've got an issue, you know, look, but yeah. don't step, kind of acknowledge it. But actually, if you get too involved in it, it, it really screws with your mind to the point where actually it can be very destructive. So, yeah, no, that, 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 that's it 100%. And when you, you're working in two different jobs and two completely different environments, you're also mixing with two lots of very different people. Yeah. And with in each of those roles, there's lots of dynamics of people. So you, you just constantly, like you said, you're constantly out of your own head. You know. I presume you're, you're, I mean, before you would find a network of people you used to work with, your family, had that sort of dissolved over your destructive period? As you felt no, my family, my family and friends were really good. Um, so that that's actually a really interesting point is here's a really big problem because if i look at my friends who they were 20 years ago and where i am now they're the same people 
the thing that's really hard to comprehend is that I'm a really nice, likable guy. And people like me. And people turn to me when they've got problems. People like hanging out with me. But that's not how I felt. So I didn't know, I couldn't understand why people were my friend. Because this is the problem. When you're looking in the mirror and you don't like that person, it doesn't matter how great your social circle is or how brilliant your friends are. You don't appreciate them. And it's, yeah, I didn't... I, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I didn't abuse anybody in any way, shape or form. Do you mm. know what I mean? I've always been of good character that way. Um, but you don't feel it. You don't feel that affection or love from them. And you, you're kind of very cold to it. And like I said, if I look at the friends I have now and the friends I had then, they're the same people. They've stood by me through everything. You know, so I'm really one of the luckiest, most blessed people around. But that was evident then, except for me, because I had my head in, in the sand. And I was just like, I hate the world and the world hates me. But I, in hindsight, there was no evidence of that at all. In fact, the evidence was the complete opposite. So you then have to, well, what was going on in your head? And it's not, it's about the fact that there were things I wanted to do, things I wanted to try and achieve, but I never stepped out of my comfort zone to see if, they, if I could do them. You know, <clears throat> I mean, a good example, I was in a long-term relationship with somebody. We had a house. We broke up, sold the house. And I really wanted to buy another house, but I couldn't figure out how to do it and stuff like that or how much money would need. But I never went to go and see a financial advisor because I was worried in case I looked stupid. So I never went and bought another house when I was in a prime position to do it because I couldn't figure out how I'd pay the mortgage. I couldn't figure out how I was going to do these, do anything. But I was too afraid to go and step into just make an appointment with a financial advisor in case they said something I didn't want to hear. Yeah. And... And that was because I was scared, well, what if I can't do it? But I never asked the question to find out if I could in the first place. And yet <clears throat> they might have come up with a perfect solution. Or if nothing else, I would have found out what, where the parameters were. What, what level did I have to reach? What did I have to do? And then there's something you can aim for. There's a goal. There's a target. But again, you're in the middle of a breakup. I moved to London. I was traveling all, you know, you just get exhausted. You just get tired and you get into this mode of just surviving. And whilst you're constantly trying to survive, you don't, you're not able to make good decisions because you don't actually trust you're doing the right thing. This time before you then fell into this, this <coughs> and then started working at the um, market. Yeah. Market, yeah. Yeah. Um, and when did you start to feel that you were beginning to, I mean, was that also a, a time that you were analysing yourself and becoming more self-aware and therefore actually being able to find <clears throat> these goals or, or what, what happened next after that? How did you come so to that? I nearly ended up in prison and I, I was just lucky that I never went to prison. I was supposed to go to prison, but the, the, basically the system was full and Jack Shaw sent out this memo to the courts that, if it's somebody's first offence and they're not dangerous and you can find a way not to send them to prison, don't send them. So I ended up doing 200 hours community service instead. And <clears throat> so, <coughs> so, excuse me. So I moved back to Wiltshire and I moved back in with my mum. And I then was doing tree surgery with my brother and that didn't work out because we, we got on great as brothers but not too good as working together. And I was, I started then following what I wanted to do and I trained went to college and did the first, my first exams to be a counsellor. And I passed the exams, but realised that I liked coaching, I didn't like counselling. And they're two very distinct differences between them. There, or at least I was back then. I haven't done anything along counselling, so I don't know if it's changed or not since then. And I started going to writing classes as well. And that, all I was really doing was starting to explore things I'd always wanted to do. And see, kind of see where you land, you know, you throw the dice and see where it rolls. And whilst I was doing that, I was sitting with somebody in a writing class who was an occupational therapist who needed somebody to work as a support worker with somebody with a head injury. 
so I started, so I said, okay, you know, explain my situation. She was like, yeah, no, that sounds good to me. Um, I later found out it's because he was quite aggressive. And at the time I had a skinhead, I was a tree surgeon. You can imagine I had a goatee and I was ripped. And she said, you look like a thug and I knew he'd be afraid of you. You know, and that's what he needed. He needed somebody that he couldn't bully. Okay. And she said, and you, you would fit that perfectly. And that, you know, I didn't actually enjoy that job that much because, you know, he, he was, despite his head injury, you know, he was just really problematic. And again, just, uh, you know, unfortunately, not everybody is a nice person regardless of their injuries. And, but I was good at that job. And so they started finding me lots of work with people, young male adults with head injuries. And one of the reasons I was good at that job is because I'd cocked up far more than they had in their lives. <clears throat> so when I was just like, so when they're like, oh, you don't understand, you're like, oh, really? What don't I understand? <laughs> so you have this connection with them because they realise you do understand about vulnerabilities. You do understand how difficult life can be. You do understand why they're afraid to do something. And you can have a conversation with them from your own point of reference. And that's a lot of times in life is really important. And what I then started to learn is for the first time, I started experience, experiencing being useful to people in a very different way, in a way that had beneficial consequences. Because when you're in an office, you, you do always just feel like you're shifting paperwork around. And it's like, look, if this all goes tomorrow, you know, it's not the end of the world. Whereas when you're actually helping somebody get over their addiction, get over their fear, getting them into college, rebuilding a relationship with their family, getting them to do things, and you see their confidence start to grow and you see their personality starting to develop. And although they have a head injury still, they're, they're rediscovering who they are and that this new person is, is kind of being born, you start to become aware that that's as a direct impact of your being there and that it wouldn't happen if you weren't there. And that had kind of quite a profound moment, <clears throat> you know, and I, I still work in head injuries now um, as well as kind of podcasting, coaching and writing and everything else. But it, that was kind of a turning point where, I started feeling that I had value, you know, and from that point, the kind of thing that starts to rub off on you that you don't always appreciate is you have to start, you start talking to them about rituals, routines, habits, disciplines, and you're just like, and of course you then have to demonstrate to them that you do the same. <laughs> and of course, once you start all of these things, with always having good habits, positive routines, you know, discipline, your mental health actually starts to improve whether you want it to or not. Because, you know, you can't lecture somebody about eating junk food and not exercising if you're eating junk food and not exercising. So... You have yeah. at six in the morning and go work out in the garden. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's it. So you actually have to start living what you're telling other people. And, you know, yeah. with these young ad male adults is when they see that you're doing it and you help them do it and you help them achieve. And, you know, I can remember sitting down with a guy explaining to him about, and no, I'm not trying to be disrespectful for beans, but like this is how much sugar is in those beans, you know, and you actually pour out the weight that it says is in there onto a plate. And they're like, oh, Jesus Christ. But in the back of your head, you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm never eating them again. <laughs> you know and yeah. and you start you know you start teaching people how to cook prepare make meals because they need to learn independence again and you realize it's like I've, I've got to start doing this at home as well haven't I because you're, you're selling them the benefits and teaching them the skills to cook and you're like oh shit because you you kind of start re rewiring your brain the same as when you start teaching them about finances and budgeting mm -hmm and how to shop properly, it starts rubbing off on yourself because we all know all of these things anyway. But you end up having to put them in practice because if they see that you're not doing it, sure. you're just a hypocrite and you're trying to get a message through to them because they, they have a head injury, they don't understand. 
So you have to break it down into really, really small sections and be very, very repetitive about it. So when you know you're going to spend the next three months, three or four times a week going over the same thing with somebody, you start to question, are you drumming it into their head or your own head? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, obviously, a lot of positive benefits for both them and your yeah. consequence. Yeah, and, and yeah. It, it kind of just that in itself escalates in the right direction. Absolutely. Um, a bit of a random question, but did you ever get a diagnosis? I was reading, there's some statistics, no. actually, very, very few people actually... No, um, I went to the doctors in 1999 and he prescribed me Prozac. And I just, I took the Prozac as in I took the, the prescription, got the Prozac. And then I was just like, and not for any other reason other than, and again, this, this is kind of that self-destructive cycle is I was just like, that's not me. Yeah. Right. So even though, I probably at that time needed it and it would have really, really helped me. I was just like, no, that's not me. I'm not taking it. And I just got stoned instead. Do you know what I mean? I got, and I got a job that was 12 hours a day in Watford while I was living in Bulford. And it was an hour and a half in the morning and two hours in the evening. But, yeah. <clears throat> but I won't take a prescribed medication um, to help lift my levels to a normal level no, no, I'm not doing that. Do you know what I mean? And that, that's... Would have been bringing them down as well. Yeah, I, I was putting myself under an immense amount of stress just by working the way I was working and where I was working. At the same time, I'd split up with somebody. I was still living in the house. We're trying to sell the house. Neither one of us is going to talk to each other. And I'm trying to move to London, you know. And there's all these complications of that, of life... And, you know, I ended up having a, a cat which was put down because it, it just fell ill. I ended up having a car accident where I hit an oncoming police car and all of these things. But I'm not taking any medication for my depression. Oh. <laughs> and you're just like, right, is there any way, shape or form you can do anything to help yourself? Do you know what I mean? And there was kind of this weird inner person that's like, no, no, I'll show you. I'll show you. And you're like, what? You're going to show me? What, that you're breaking down from the inside outwards, but you're not going to do anything to help yourself. But you don't see it like that. You've got this stubborn chip on your shoulder. And it's, it's just funny how when you're in that place, you don't see how self-destructive you're being. And yet, if I'd have just taken the Prozac, if I'd have just explored counselling, you know, the irony of being somebody that would talk about counselling would say you have to do these things, but I wouldn't then do it. Because, oh, well, I know all of this. I don't need any help. Yeah. And it's just like, no, you, you, you're an idiot and you're talking shit. And you, deep down, you know you are. And I think that's partly one of the problems that makes it escalate and compounds it is because you're lying to yourself, even if you think you're not aware of it. But deep, deep down, somewhere deep in your psyche, you are aware that you're lying to yourself. But your subconscious is like, you, you're not even prepared to start having a conversation with me about this. So we will just let you destroy yourself and we will pick up the pieces afterwards. I think, you know, it's, it's a really common thing, isn't it? Very common, very common. And actually, whether you took the Prozac or not, that actually just the ability for anyone, whether it was a life coach or, um, you know, business coach or a friend or a counsellor, to have actually held up a mirror to you and said, you know, have a look at your life. Is Is this making sense? Because... No doubt at the time, you know, doing this job in Watford would have been really important and it, it gave you that sense of achievement, maybe, or, or whatever it was behind that. But actually, in hindsight, anyone who's driving three odd hours than working 12 hours, yeah, that's that's never going to be a recipe for success. You know, whether, whether you're taking the Prozac to try and bring up your levels or, or, or not, you know, there's the fundamental parts of your life there that would yeah. have such a high level of stress that there would have been a natural toll on your body and your sense of well-being. Well, that's it. To put it in perspective, I would leave the house at 20 past five in the morning and I would get home most nights by nine o'clock. And I can't imagine you were doing exercise, sleeping well, um, eating well, especially if you were smoking, then um, 
is yeah. making canvas of some sort, then you, know, oh, you, you do, you know, you, you, can, you can add in certain substances just to keep you awake so you don't crash on the M25 home. Which you don't do into a police car, anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and it's just, but like I said, if going back to what you just said about if somebody had held a mirror up to me, mm. I, I would have seen a very, no, what would have been there, but I wouldn't have seen it. I, the reflection would have been a very broken person who was desperately trying to hold himself together. But, I would never at that time, I just was not able to see it. You know, I definitely can't say that if I'd spoken to a counsellor or a coach or somebody, right, they might have got me to, to see that because I definitely knew it inside. The thing that was a problem is that I thought I was doing the right thing and that I knew what the solution was. Yeah. And what you realise in hindsight is you aren't the answer to your problems not not yet and that's because you're 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 too blinded by fear and pain and just confused by everything that goes on in your life and the problem when you're really down like that and in those positions and there's this life going on around you that is just kicking the shit out of you that you become so sheltered just trying to protect yourself but you also doubt everything and that there's no way out so not only do you constantly feel that you have to protect yourself no no not also you feel that you're you are literally just having the shit kicked out of you on a daily basis and you're in this state of survival you're afraid to make any decisions because you don't have any confidence that anything's going to work out and you're constantly racked with self-doubt and you kind of hibernate into that as a solution and you never take any chances and you become afraid of everything going on around you and when that's all happening you then get into a position where you're like trying to figure out what the solution is well if, the, if you took that into a business scenario and I pointed to the quivering wreck in the corner who hasn't even lifted their head up out of the fetal position to say hello to anyone and said, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to the person who's going to make all of the decisions for the day. You'd all be like, fuck off. That guy probably doesn't even know how to toilet himself yet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But that's who you, that's who you are. But you're, you, you become so cocooned and so... Like, like I said, hibernating in this weird protection, just trying to stay like, I've just got to survive. I'm just trying to survive. That the idea that, that you actually think at that time, you think you are the answer and that you will figure a way out is ludicrous. But your thinking is so warped that, that there's, that, what else are you going to do? You know what, David, I think you make a really valid point, and it's something I hear quite often of those who've had um, various mental health experiences and all uh, mental health experiences and are, are recovering is that that sense of when you're, you're on the bottom of some sort of, you know, dark, dark place. And actually, it's really difficult to be able to step back. You can sometimes sense yeah. that you need help, but you feel that you, you are the, you know, you don't you almost don't want to let anyone else in, else in in case that 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 just causes everything to fall to pieces. And if that happens, there's nothing left, you know, how, how on earth do you come back from that? But actually that can be the beginnings of a rebuild. <clears throat> that, at the time, you're, you're too frightened, too scared, too worried, too anxious, too overwhelmed to be able to, to, to even... So we, we often see people sort of saying... Like, you, you just made... Throw away or how dare you, you know. You just made an amazing point, right? Is you don't understand when you're in that position how... If you you're not able to take a step back, because you're it, it's it is like those cartoon pictures where it's just a big tangled ball of like wall knots and everything, and you're just like, how does this untangle? But if you could just, if I just started talking to somebody, it would have started to unravel, and there might not have been an instant solution, but I wouldn't have been alone with my thoughts. 
there would have been somebody that would have said to me, you're not going crazy. You're not alone and you are safe. Yeah. You're going to be all right. And because of that, because I'd have been able to unravel that, because your friends are no good. Your friends can't do that for you because they've got their own lives going on and they're not trained and they're not subjective. They're not detached from it either. And <clears throat> nobody wants you turning up to every single night out or whatever saying, right, guys, I'm just going to offload for the next 17 hours. You know what I mean? And <clears throat> but if you, that's what I was so stuck in my own place that there was nobody for me to just you know, spend an hour just offloading and just having that person listen to me and just get it out of my system instead of just like designing an entire system biologically and emotionally to try and stay on top of it and cope with it because you can't you know it, it, it literally is like a boiler constantly on full blast and then i'm just going to turn the pressure up more well, it's not designed for that and it's not designed to do that for the next four or five years it will collapse no matter how many times you patch it up it's just faulty machinery and that kind of saying of burying yourself in the sand is true because you, but you do it from a very different perspective. You don't realize that that's what you're doing. You actually think you're doing your best to cope and you are, but it's not the most productive way to cope. And had I had enough wisdom to talk to somebody about it and this i'm just and i'm just going to say this now because i started seeing a therapist called caroline Kavanagh, and it was over talking to her over a, a period of like several years and just offloading and talking and her asking questions that the unraveling happened and that's when i started to realize oh this is where i really went wrong when i was younger I never took that time out to go and see somebody who specialized in that area, somebody that could actually listen and listen objectively. And because when you can listen objectively, you can also answer objective questions. And that what starts to happen is when you can't answer those questions with the answers that you believe, it starts to unravel and that narrative you've been telling yourself falls apart and when it starts to collapse around you you have to think of what the different answers and solutions are and Caroline for me was amazing at doing that and was and that really really helped me look back in hindsight and see how self-destructive I had been while I actually thought I was taking good care of myself and looking after myself yeah and you're carrying a huge burden for a very long time there as well, weren't you? I mean, there must be yeah. a sort of sense of relief actually that you put all that, put that down and, and let it go, and that you understand yourself better. I mean, that's actually sort of yeah. it, it's enlightening in so many ways, isn't it? That you know, okay, those are those are actually my values, and this is what makes me, and this is how I will react. Yeah. Now. And, and you realise you're not crazy. Um, David, I appreciate it. I've taken out a lot of your time and um, it's been, I, I really appreciate um, what you've had to, to say and, and and I hope, you know, what you've shared will go on to help other mainly men actually just sort of understand that it's 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 entirely normal to have all these burdens, but yeah. also really important to put them down. If you had um, maybe um, two bits of advice for anyone who's currently in that position now, what, what would you say to them? If if you're in that position whilst it's going on and you're feeling that stress, start looking for somebody to talk to. You know, I, I know it's the most difficult time, but you're going to get, once it's over, you're going to have to deal with the grief. <clears throat> and, and that's the thing where you, you're really going to need kind of a good therapist help. Once you've started to offload some of that grief, and you're starting to rebuild your life, that's when you really need to start taking care of the physical aspects of your life. Good diet, good exercise, good finances, so you can start making sound decisions to move forward. 
because once you start looking forward with a sound mind, you will start to feel safe. And when you start to feel safe, you start to trust yourself and you're in a better place then to encourage yourself to do other things. Maybe that's some brilliant advice. Thank you. Really you're very welcome. That. So there you have it. There is a tale of my life in segments. If anybody is feeling the same, suffering in that way, or resonates with you, please feel free to get in touch with either myself or Julia or Caroline Kavanagh, who I have mentioned on several podcasts. Alternatively, leave your comments. Let us know what you think. But most of all, please be kind to yourself and take care.